The Trilogy Podcast with Vin and Scott. Three movies, two men, one podcast. I like New York in June. How about you? I like a Gershwin tune. How about you? Ah, this kind of a song warms my heart. It's, it's June. Things are finally getting back to normal here in New York. What do you mean, back to normal? What are you talking about, Scott? I, we're, I mean, people are still living under stay-at-home orders. Coronavirus and Scott, these cops are beating people in the street. Okay. I mean, there's protests. There's, there's, there's been uh, okay. Scott, the National Guard. I, I like New York in June. This June, not in general. In June, I'm not. I don't know. I just think it's uh, Scott. The world outside might be confusing, but here we're the Trilogy Podcast, the only podcast in the universe devoted strictly to trilogies. No reboots. No straight to cable or video. We're bringing you facts, debate, trivia, and more. To hell with the movie, if they made four. Yes. I'm Vin. I'm Scott. And here we are. I'm trying to be positive. Your negative is all hell. I'm sorry. There's a lot of negativity. Uh, It seeps in sometimes. When you have a trilogy that's named the way this one is, you have to feel positive. Scott, it's what? Terry Gilliam's Americana trilogy. The Fisher King, 12 Monkeys... And Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yes. Okay, so that's America for you. I guess Americana was ironic when you and I decided on it this time around, no? Uh, sort of, but I think there are there are things that uh, definitely connect to our current period of time. No, the Fisher King has to do with the Holy Grail, and we just dealt with the Grail in our last episode in, yeah. the, in the Robert Langdon trilogy, so that's something. One is a cup, one is not a cup. But the word Grail is... Used. It's well, it's the same item. <laughs> also, recently, you know, we always comb through our master list of trilogies and we added a lot of directors' trilogies, a very specific kind of trilogy. Scott, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yes. We should probably let Trilogy Bot, our robotic friend, we should probably let him explain exactly what a director's trilogy is. It's a very very unique trilogy in our world. Yeah, I'm just going to uh, hold my hands over my ears for this entire portion. You do that. I will. Terry Gilliam's Americana Trilogy is a director's trilogy. These unique trilogies involve three films, often with different plots and characters, that are linked through a common director, and very strongly reflect his themes and style. P.S. If you're covering your ears right now, you are a douchebag. He's a son of a bitch. I, I have no idea what you're talking about because I didn't listen to a word of that. Should I be the one to remind you what a director's trilogy is then? I think I got it. When you have a director's trilogy, Scott, is they're connected usually by um, the style of that director, the themes, and often the circumstance. And by circumstance, I mean with Terry Gilliam, he made two consecutive trilogies. His first three films after... Monty Python's Holy Grail, he considers his Imagination Trilogy. And that's going to be Time Bandits, Brazil, and the Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Right. Now, for our purposes, we don't even consider that a valid trilogy. Two of those films, Brazil and Munchausen, didn't get a wide release. His next three films were his first three and only three American films. And he considers that his Americana Trilogy. The difference between the first 
trilogy and this trilogy is that that first one is very um, surreal and involves a lot of supernatural elements. Right. Whereas the American trilogy, he says himself, is more grounded in reality. Right. And I think still pretty surreal at moments, but yeah. well, we see it through the mind of characters that have mental illness. That's right. That's the uh, the framework that he's giving it in th this American trilogy. And we also have to mention that this is based on other people's work. The Imagination trilogy, he had a hand in writing all three of those films. Right. These, he's going with someone else's screenplay, someone else's story. Usually the director himself deems three of his films to be a trilogy for whatever reason. And that's the case here. He said in multiple interviews that he considers these six films to be a set of two trilogies. It's, it's not a trilogy of sequels. They're independent. So it's going to be kind of interesting, too, with the plot. Are you ready to rock into your plot? I am ready. All right. I can't wait because after fucking Robert Langdon and all that heavy-duty plot business, anything will be a relief. Well, you're in luck. Okay, so I cannot wait to hear this. Just just j jump into it. Fuck it. Just jump into it. Do we ever do anything else? Uh, Come on. Well, sometimes, but... What do you mean? Nothing. Go. Uh, okay, so uh, these are the plots, and what I do here is a Scott's Plots! Scott's Plots! Scott's... Plots are nice. Scots plots with rice. What? Scots plots on ice. Jesus. I'm running out of ideas. I don't even know. <laughs> I wondered what kind of a song you were going to connect to these three films. I went with something weird. Give us some plots. Not my best. Okay. What I do here is I just give you the general sense of the plots of the movies. No character names. Uh, very no frills, just kind of get to the point. So if you haven't seen the movies in a while, this is a good refresher. And if you don't care to ever watch the movies, then I got you covered. The Americana Trilogy begins with The Fisher King. 1991. In New York, a popular radio DJ gives bad advice to a caller who goes out and shoots up a Chinese restaurant, ending the DJ's meteoric rise. This is obviously Howard Stern. And Howard yeah. Stern has just told Fred the Elephant Boy some crazy shit on the radio. And one of the whack pack has murdered a bunch of people. Oh, yeah, right? for sure. For the time, absolutely. That's also a throwback to that dude from Talk Radio, I think, as well. The idea yes. of provoking people and getting direct action from your audience. Three years later, the radio DJ is a drunk, working at a video store and dating the owner of the video store, but is still tormented by the guilt of causing the shooting. <laughs> Stop making me laugh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you made me laugh when you said shooting. While attempting suicide, the radio DJ is attacked by some fratish-looking white guys, but quickly saved by a delusional homeless guy who believes he is a servant of God searching for the Holy Grail, and that the radio DJ is the chosen one to help him find it. In the first of many inexplicable scenes in this film, <laughs> the Trump youth apparently is traveling around New York, lighting on fire homeless people. Yeah. They seem to be stalking the homeless people of New York. Yeah. There I mean, are things in this movie, and I think all of uh, Terry Gilliam's movies, where you go, are, do these people exist, or did you just make this up? I'm going to say it once, and you're going to hear me say it through this whole podcast. <laughs> Terry Gilliam is only concerned about the picture and the art of what we're looking right. at. He lets the actors just kind of do whatever they want. So you get this insane scene where Robin Williams is singing, homeless people are dressed up, they're choreographed. Oh, yeah. They're choreographed. One's standing, one's kneeling. It's a balanced picture, for God's yeah, sake. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I mean, it's perfect Terry Gilliam. I think at times he lets actors just go. 
and go. Well, I and mean, go. He certainly, he certainly let Rob Williams go do whatever he wants. This is the, the wrong kind he's of actor for this. He's in jokes. Yeah. He's improving. He's ad libbing. Yeah. So the DJ discovers that the homeless man's wife was one of the people killed during the shooting at the Chinese restaurant, and that this caused the homeless man to have a mental break, go into a state of catatonia, and emerge as the servant of God who is haunted by a fiery soldier on horseback, a representation of his inability to accept reality. Okay, come on. That's not a part of the plot. You're analyzing stuff there. I threw it in analyze. How yeah, dare yeah. you? I wrote that down later as a deep analysis that I figured out, and you're just going to drop it so casually I mean, here? it's clear. Every, what? Every time they talk about it, he's like, what happened with your wife? He's uh, like, oh no, he's here. It's pretty I obviously. I can't believe you just did that. Okay. I mean, you tried to make it make sense <sighs> in the context of the plot. The DJ decides to help the homeless man by setting him up with a woman that the homeless man is in love with and has been following. So we just basically forget about the grail then for a solid hour of the movie. Yeah, it's, it's kind of abrupt that just like, and I'm following her. This has nothing to do with me being my psychosis. Yeah. This is just me wanting to bang yeah. her. Yeah, and that her is Amanda Plummer. I'd rather have the cup. I mean, it makes sense with their characters, you know what I mean? That they like, oh, she's kind of a lonely weirdo. He's kind of a fucked so. up lonely weirdo. I mean, if if a homeless guy's got to stalk someone that might have the chance of also falling for him, it'll, it's going to be Amanda Plummer. Yeah. The DJ and his girlfriend, the video store owner, get the woman the homeless man is in love with to come to the video store and later to the girlfriend's apartment to have her nails done. There, the DJ and his girlfriend convince the woman to join them and the homeless man now cleaned up and wearing a suit for dinner. I mean, hardly a suit. They really half-assed <laughs> the whole makeover of Robin Williams in this film. Yeah. Even when they put the video store shirt on him, they leave his dirty, filth, homeless shirt on underneath. Take off this shirt. Oh, yeah. That's what I, well, at that point, I was like, why didn't you clean him up? And I was like, oh, because you're doing the dinner scene later, so you wanted to save the cleanup scene for Even later. Even then, in the movie. that suit doesn't fit, and the no. lady staples it to him. No, well, it, it looks like he borrowed it from David Byrne. Like, it's yeah, yeah. fucking crazy. That's exactly <laughs> You may ask yourself, Is how that? did I get here? My wife got shot. Water <laughs> flowing under. The homeless man and the woman hit it off, and he walks her home confessing his love for her. All seems to be well until the fiery soldier on horseback appears and chases the homeless man back to where he first met the DJ. There, he is stabbed and beaten by those fratish-looking white guys, sending the homeless man back into a state of catatonia. Whenever the plot requires a homeless person to take an ass kicking, it's got to be right there. The Trump guys <laughs> just roll right in and they're like, oh, a homeless guy. How dare you be homeless, you lazy asshole. We should just light you on fire. Yeah. We're tired of looking at you. I don't know. I could see it. I could, I could Maybe see. Maybe just don't give them a quarter. Just keep walking. I could see some, you know, kids from like, you know, Phil's hometown uh, yeah. being like, my dad said that all homeless people need to be spit on and pissed on. Like, what? Uh, why? <laughs> Because I'm hateful, that's why. <laughs> the DJ goes back to work at the radio station, and his career rebounds. But he still feels guilty about the homeless man. The swing here is ridiculous. The fact that he's humanized, and as soon as he finds a tiny bit of success, radically swings right back to yeah. being a son of a bitch. I, you know, I think it's a little more realistic, though, because change, it's not like everyone has the Scrooge overnight realization, you know? I think change is in increments. 
in a way. That's a good point. It, it feels false in the movie, but I think it's it's actually because it's a little more realistic. What you're describing is realistic, but the way they do it in the movie, the way they set it up, yeah. gives it this false around the edges kind of a feel. Yeah. So no, you make no, a good I point. Agree. You know, yeah, it feels good. weird. Where you're like, why are we re resetting just to go right back to where we were? You know, sure. they're going back there. You know, he's coming back and he's going to help him and all that. And, and, and what it does is it also, in a way, cheapens all of the interactions he's had with Perry. Robin Williams up right. until that point because then it's like oh I was just using you because of my guilt and now that my guilt is assuaged everything's yeah. fine everything's back to status quo well I mean he says at the beginning of the movie there's a line he's like I just wish I could you know pay the ticket and go home yeah the DJ decides to steal the holy grail for the homeless man I did air quotes there just so you guys know. I saw him which in reality is a trophy in a rich guy's building while he's there the the rich guy is having an overdose. Yes, I specifically am not mentioning it because it's so unimportant. To I the have movie. to mention it because I'm baffled. Oh, it would have been mentioned. He has an overdose, <laughs> and then it's never brought up again. It's I, never. I'm baffled as to why that happens. Do you know what the location of that Castley building is? It's clearly not anyone's home that has ever existed, and I feel like I've passed it on the east side. I turned to Amy and I was like, "Is that the New York Garbage Depot right yeah. there?" With those red bricks? <laughs> that's why, for some reason, I'm like, I feel like that's a completely different city in, like, that's Canada the, that's or something. a salvage like. yard. Yeah. <laughs> I think you passed that on the FDR. Yeah. It's not <laughs> a home. The DJ brings the homeless man the cup, who awakens from his catatonia, presumably cured of his insanity. And Bridges learns a valuable lesson about himself and... Yes. ...the kind of person he should be. He learns to enjoy being naked in Central Park. June. We're back in Central Park. We're getting naked. Well, no. <laughs> we might not be in Central Park. We might be in a dystopian future where we're forced to go back in time. Which perfectly segues into 12 Monkeys. 1995. In the future, Earth has been ravaged by a virus and the survivors are forced to live underground while animals roam the Earth. A group of scientists decide to send a prisoner who is haunted by a childhood memory of a man being shot at an airport back to 1996 to collect information on a mysterious group who released the virus. It's sort of Bruce Willis light, slow Bruce Willis, where he's kind of doofy and he... I actually read that Terry Gilliam had a list of... Uh, like Bruce Willis isms that he was like, you're not allowed to do. This I read things. that too. I'm surprised Bruce let him get away with that. Yeah, he also did. I mean, he did this movie for practically free. Yeah, too. yep. But when the prisoner arrives in 1990, damn it! Talking about viruses, he is arrested and sent to a mental institution to be put under the care of a psychiatrist. Yes, total fuck up on their part. Our bad. Sorry, the six looked like a zero. I'm sorry. Yet another trilogy. Time travel. That involves time travel. Although, I'm not going to lie to you, Scott. I accepted it in this film. It made sense to me. It wasn't confusing. And the whole movie yeah. was about the dynamic of time travel. It wasn't just slapped on to make a plot convention work or to make right. something fit. This was the nuts and bolts of it. And I think they handled it pretty well, all things considered. Well, I think time travel usually, you know, in movies always falls into a couple of categories. There's either like, if you change it, it changes immediately. Uh-huh. Or there's the kind of like, it's sort of set in stone. Everything that you will do has already happened. And there's and, different timelines, that notion. Yeah. Yeah. And I always prefer this kind of time travel story, where it's sort of time travel is not really going to help you fix the problem. Even, I guess, this board of review, this 
bunch of scientists that send Bruce Willis back, even they acknowledge it. They say, we, we know we can't stop the virus from happening. Right. We just want to find out about it, want you to find out about it so we can cure it now. As you watch the movie, you do feel like they're going to stop it, even though it's been stated by Bruce Willis, too, several times that there's nothing you can do to change it. But yeah, no it's one coming, really explains why. Why can't you stop it? The guy's right there. Stop it. Well, stop because, it. Well, because as we find out later, it's all, you know... That's another thing I think is a hallmark of all three of these is we have sort of the unreliable narrator ah, throughout all these movies. Good so point. It's, good it's point. Sort of, it, it does give you a sense of confusion for through all these movies. Sure. Okay. At the mental institution, the prisoner meets a deranged young man who shouts about corporations and the environment and helps the prisoner try to escape the mental institution. The prisoner escapes the mental institution but is quickly captured and locked in a cell but disappears moments later back to the future! How dare you? I, I, you know, what's funny is I just wrote it that way and then laughed. Was like I can't. I phrased it. He, he goes back to the future. <laughs> can, can you not? You got to acknowledge it. <laughs> okay. The scientists question the prisoner, who tells them they sent him to the wrong time. They also show him photos of people who may be involved with the mysterious group. One of which is the deranged young man from the mental institution. The scientists give him a second chance and try to send the prisoner to 1996, but instead send him to World War One. Damn. The prisoner gets shot in the leg and sees a friend of his who was also sent back in time. Meanwhile, in 19... <laughs> Love when you do your meanwhiles. <laughs> Meanwhile, in 1996, the psychiatrist from earlier gives a lecture where she has a strange encounter with an odd man. And afterwards, she is kidnapped by the prisoner who tells her to drive him to Philadelphia. So after the fuck up where they send the prisoner to World War One, they then send him to... 1996. Right, all right. So that's they the finally get it right. That's the third time travel there. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. And basically the only reason they fuck up that World War One is to give her some kind of evidence to believe him later on that he isn't crazy, right. that he really is a time traveler. Right. You're literally holding evidence in your hand. This bullet that, is from... Yeah. And then just for good measure, a photo. <laughs> that photo, it looks like a he's bald and naked. It looks like he's crawling out of a grave. It's disgusting. <laughs> the first time he goes back to Baltimore, he's in a big see-through like raincoat thing that is part of the time travel process. Yeah. And in the second one, he's completely naked when he goes to World War One. To quote, I don't know, they ever give that character a name, but science is an exact science or some shit. Right. You know? the, the narrator that... I always refer to him as Bob, but that's just because that's what he calls Bruce Willis. Oh, really? Yeah. He keeps, hey, Bob. And he's like, I'm not Bob. I don't know. What are you talking about? I just think that's, that's Bruce Willis's inner monologue almost. Yeah. That's what yeah. it's supposed to represent. All of these movies really play with that perception of like reality of like what is real, what isn't real. You know what I mean? I mean, again, like you said before, the idea of just a, a narrator that we can't we can't trust. Right. In Philadelphia, the prisoner kills a couple of guys in an old theater, then interrogates some friends of the deranged young man who confirm that the deranged young man is behind the mysterious group. The prisoner puts the psychiatrist in the trunk of a car and goes to confront the deranged young man who is out of the mental institution and at his rich virologist's father's house. He was really very mentally ill. Like he shouldn't be released. Oh, you yeah. know. Well, I mean, I think that's that's I think that's kind of like an undertone of the movie too. Is that well, if you have a rich family, you know, you can get out. But there are people who are poor who are going to be in a mental institution the rest of their fucking life because they don't have daddy with deep pockets. Or is Brad Pitt simply able to 
unfocus one of his eyes and look kind of weird. Uh, he's actually he's uh, wearing contacts. You think you know so much? Just keep going. I looked it up. Just keep going. Because he's got blue eyes in reality. So he wore brown contacts, and one of them is slightly off kilter than okay. the other one. When confronted by the prisoner, the deranged young man denies any involvement, insisting the virus idea was the prisoner's. The prisoner is chased by security back to the car, where he lets out the psychiatrist, jumps in a puddle, and disappears. Back to the future! <laughs> Yeah, it's around this time we get the idea of the whole Terminator <laughs> paradox and yeah. how events from the future affect events from the present. Right. I always find is if you if you set the rules and play by them, the movie will be fine. But a lot of time, there are a lot of time travel movies that will set their own rules and then break them immediately. We've discussed this before, the idea of the rules in time travel and how yeah. they're sometimes disregarded and other times followed to varying effects, yeah. you know. I believe this is also sort of how, um, I forget what they call it in Harry Potter, that, that that it's basically like you can't change things. You can just go back and look. But the thing is, you've always gone back and looked. That's why they say like there's no way we're ever going to invent time travel because we would have met time travelers already. In the future, the prisoner begins to believe he is crazy and the scientists are all in his head, but plays along to be sent back to 1996. When the prisoner arrives in 1996, the psychiatrist proves he's not crazy by showing the prisoner a World War I photo of himself and his friend. This was a baffling part of the movie where it really started to get confusing for me. As soon as she's finally on board and yeah. realizes what's happening, he's like, no, I'm just crazy. What? Does he really believe that suddenly? Or is he just saying that so that he can stay in 1996 or whatever? I, I don't understand why Bruce Willis swings so dramatically there. I think it's because the last thing he does before he gets sent back is he talks to Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt tells him, hey, that was all your idea. And he, I think he starts the question of like, did I make this whole thing up? Am I really just a crazy person screaming about a thing that's not real? So you think he genuinely believes it? Yeah. And it plays with the idea of like, who is crazy? What is crazy? She's finally convinced. He's like, no, I'm crazy. And she's like, Okay, you must be crazy then. I'm, I'm wrong. Fuck it. Let's just go to, to the Florida Keys and uh, hope for the best. Yeah. You're about to explain how yes. this little deception. Go ahead. The psychiatrist and the prisoner decide to disguise themselves and flee to the Florida Keys. On the way to the airport, they learn the mysterious group led by the deranged young man has released all the animals from the zoo and were not behind the virus. When they arrive at the airport, the prisoner makes a phone call back to the future! <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> I had to get one more in there. Come all on. Right, all right, all right. Rule of threes, everybody. All Come right. On. To tell the scientist that he is not coming back. Moments later, the prisoner's friend from earlier arrives and gives the prisoner a gun. The psychiatrist recognizes the odd man from earlier and discovers he's a scientist at the deranged young man's father's lab and that the odd man is the one who releases the virus. The prisoner runs through a security checkpoint, and just before he can shoot the odd man, he is gunned down by police. It is revealed that the man the prisoner saw being shot as a child was in fact himself. The odd man gets on the plane and sits next to one of the scientists from the future, which I don't know what that really confirms I or tells us. Scott, I don't understand it. Well, she says, she references being... Um, the insurance. She's yes. an insurance. I'm so, an insurance. Or am I to believe that they've sent her in case Bruce Willis failed to get the necessary information they need that he was trying to get the whole time? Or that she was evil and somehow was preventing Bruce Willis from succeeding like she didn't want him to shoot the guy? 
Right. It's uh, it's needlessly like confusing. Is, is she ensuring that the virus happens, exactly. or is this her? She's gonna like stick him in the neck and steal his, you know. And, and, and if that's the case, why send Bruce Willis back in the first place? If you knew you were right. sending him to a situation where he couldn't possibly succeed, where he's gonna be handed a gun at the terminal of a, of an airport, right? It's weird. I think she is ensuring that the virus happens. To what end? I'm not entirely yeah. sure. There's no question there's a nefariousness about them that they're not on the level and there's a weird evilness about the sure. scientists and what too, their intentions and are. their motives. But overall, hey, you ready to do the last one? Yeah. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. 1998. In the 70s, a journalist and his lawyer are speeding across the desert under the influence of and in possession of many different drugs. And you could just stop right there. We could be done with the plots right the now. <laughs> and that's the whole, that's it. They're, honestly, there's nothing else. They pick up a hitchhiker, and the journalist tells him that he's been assigned to report on a motorcycle race in Las Vegas. But the journalist and the lawyer's behavior scare the hitchhiker, and he runs away. Yep, this has nothing to do with anything. It was simply a storytelling device. Yep. Just give you a little background of why why are we watching these guys go well, to the desert. And still, unless you have familiarity with fear and loathing, yeah. You still don't necessarily know what's going on. You can't understand what anyone's saying, so it doesn't right. really matter. They could be saying anything. I think, I mean, it's definitely meant to be sort of, they're already in the pace of action. And well, maybe, you hear, you. maybe you hear the words Mint 300 or whatever the name of the race Mint is. Mint 400. I Mint think, 400, yeah. but you, you still don't really have a sense of. No. The focus is really the bats over and over again here. The journalist takes a hit of acid that kicks in just as they arrive at their hotel in Las Vegas, and the journalist struggles to check in and hallucinates a lizard orgy. Ugh, just... The next day, the journalist and his photographer go out in a jeep to cover the motorcycle race, and the journalist thinks he's in a war zone, so he fires the photographer and leaves. Something that could be interesting, a big rally like this, the very reason they've sent him to Vegas, immediately rendered uninteresting <laughs> and stupid. Thank you, movie. Are you sure you're a journalist? <laughs> like, you're not covering anything. Later... The journalist and the lawyer eat mescaline and huff ether and go to a circus-themed casino, but it freaks out the lawyer, so they leave. After returning to the hotel room from the casino, the journalist finds the lawyer has taken way too much acid and is in the bath and keeps trying to bring the tape player in the tub. The journalist ends up taking the tape player and locking the lawyer in the bathroom. The journalist then flashes back to a time in the 60s when he spilt acid on his shirt and some other hippie licked it off him while a square in a suit watched. Various cameo performances. Specifically, in that scene, you have uh, trilogy superstar Flea licking that stuff off his shirt. And Lyle Lovett, in addition to Hunter S. Thompson himself. Yes, which is like a very obvious, even if yeah. you had no idea, you'd be like, that has to be the real guy, right? Right, so. I mean, they do it in a very Let's obvious way. Let's not pretend way, this but. is a plot. It's a flashback to the 60s where, again, nothing at all happens. I think it's a reflection on the hippie culture, and I think that's kind of what the movie becomes in trying to find that American dream sort of thing. So I think there's definitely, there's, there's a story. There's a, there's a reason the story is being told, but there is quite a bit of just real, real time just going, here's what I did. And it happened to be a shit ton of drugs. Yeah, well. The next morning, the journalist wakes to find his lawyer has gone back to LA and left a huge hotel bill. Having no money, the journalist jumps in the car and tries to hightail it back to LA, but he is pulled over in the desert and the cop advises he take a nap at the next rest stop. I mean, for Christ's sake, it's Gary Busey, but you're delighted to see him because yeah. at least someone is saying something that you can understand. When Gary Busey is the most articulate person in your movie, 
there's a problem. Yeah. The guy's speaking through fucking doors in his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking teeth like bay windows. (laughs) Serious. It's one of my favorite. And that's Gary Busey. Don't pretend that's Gary Busey playing a cop. That's Gary Busey. I don't think he was hired for the film. I think he just... He pulled up and was like... They probably told Gary Busey he was playing himself. They're like, yeah, it's, uh, yeah it's, you're playing you in a cop uniform. <laughs> As a cop, yeah. That's a good idea. I think I will do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the part where he asked him for a kiss because I'm like, did any of that just happen? The journalist calls the lawyer and discovers that the lawyer got him a room at another hotel and the journalist is now covering a police convention on narcotics. Mm. Apropos. Yeah, perfect. Much more apropos than the bike race that he had to go. Why are you saying apropos that way? Apropos. <laughs> apropos. I'm intercontinental, so <laughs> apropos. I'm sorry. <laughs> I doubted you. The journalist arrives at the hotel and finds the lawyer with an underage girl high on LSD, and the journalist quickly convinces the lawyer to dump her in a different hotel before the acid wears off. Don't say quickly. They have a long, meaningless conversation in the hallway where he's trying to get her to leave. And it's a cameo. You it's want essentially a no-line camera. We need to get back to where we were before, to fucked up guys wandering around. The hangover is similar. Guys going back and trying to fix their mistakes and making more mistakes. And You know what I mean? This movie makes, makes the hangover look like Citizen Kane. <laughs> Go ahead. That's... Insanity. (laughs) You're the one on drugs. (laughs) The journalist and the lawyer go to the police convention and snort cocaine while listening to a ridiculous presentation on drugs. Back at the hotel room, the underage girl calls and the lawyer pretends that men have kicked in the door and are beating him, so she will stay away. Meanwhile, the journalist has taken way too much adrenochrome and black sack. The journalist wakes to find the hotel room trashed and listens to recordings on his tape recorder to piece together what happened. While listening to the recordings, the journalist recalls memories of trying to buy an orangutan, him and the lawyer pretending to be cops to scare a maid, smashing their own car, and the lawyer propositioning and then threatening a diner waitress. That's a disgraceful scene. Poor Ellen Barkin is acting her heart out, taking this movie seriously, and it's a throwaway. Of all the cameos, I I think it's the best cameo because it's a real fucking scene. It's not just a cameo of someone saying a couple of lines and bye. No, you're right, though, but it's an island adrift in a puddle of meaninglessness. I, I think the movie is supposed to show you it's sort of the selfishness, although hippies, you you know, do acid all the time, preach about being togetherness and all this shit. These are guys who bought into that culture and have victims. The journalist drops the lawyer off at the airport by driving through a fence onto the tarmac. The journalist then returns to Vegas to finish his article and then drives back to L.A. can't believe you're defending this movie. You know what? We'll come back to this, all right? Because my brother also is like, I love that movie. And I'm like, I want to kill anyone that loves this movie. I just, you know, I would never threaten to kill you over, (laughs) over your movie beliefs hyperbole i will say this though in the 70s you could just do anything and it seems that no one cared your people are driving right onto the tarmac of airports you're yeah breaking up casinos no one gives a shit yeah except for when they he drives onto the sidewalk at that one yeah. hotel. they're like what the hell are you doing i'm like but nobody said anything at the airport which was it's almost weird. like the patterns of the world were so garish in the 70s that if you added to that chaos no one seemed to notice yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they certainly didn't have the regulation. <laughs> no question. All right. Well done, Scott. As always, well done. Thank you. Now, because this is a director's trilogy, it's going to go a little bit different. I'm going to break down these three films for you, but there are actually no actors that have been in 
all three movies. So I thought we would just do a little bit of talking about Terry Gilliam and some of the things that we're seeing that were the same in all three of these movies. The Fisher King. I got to tell you, in 1991, this movie got a lot of buzz. People were impressed by um, Robin Williams' performance. Hmm. It's a showy part, and it, it got a lot of notice at the time. I mean, he's he's great. This was Terry Gilliam's first non-Python movie that had no Monty Python characters at all. He wanted to move away from movies that had big budgets, like really big budgets. He had run into that problem with Baron Munchausen, which is considered to this day to be one of the biggest box office flops. It was budgeted at something around $50 million and made... Just a couple million dollars. Yeah. Fisher King doubled its money and, of course, received Academy Award nominations for Best Actor for Robin Williams, for Best Original Screenplay, for Best Score, Art Direction, and Best Supporting Actress, Mercedes Rule, and she won. It's funny. I was going to say her character is sort of a, uh, it's a precursor to Marissa Tomei in My Cousin Vinny, so it's funny that she- Is that what you thought of? Yeah, I did. Because I thought of Cher in Moonstruck. I did think of that, too. I did think of that, too. Okay. Clock is ticking like this, and the way this case is going, I ain't never getting married. You know, all right, the engagement is off. In time, you will see that this is the best thing. In time, you'll drop dead, and I'll come to your funeral in a red dress. Very good reviews, and considered to this day to be a very well made, very great entry into American film for Terry Gilliam. Then we got 12 Monkeys. Originally, he wanted bridges for the Brad Pitt part. All right, so that's a. That's an example of him taking an actor that he likes and wanting to continue to use him. Yeah. All right. But uh, he was kind of shot down for the, for the Goins part, and Pitt wound up getting it. Now, at the time, Brad Pitt was not a big name when he was cast. But between the period of time he was cast and this movie was released, Interview with the Vampire came out, Seven came out, and Legends of the Fall came out. So suddenly, the movie became a star vehicle for Brad Pitt, whereas it wasn't originally conceived that way. Right. And of course, Brad Pitt received an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that actually, uh, I think he considered Johnny Depp for that role as well. Is that right? Oh, God! Oh, God! Oh! He didn't know. It also did great money. It was made for around $30 million and made about $170 million big-time good reviews. And it spawned a TV adaptation that was out from 2015 to 2018. The film is inspired by a short French film called La Jetée, which okay. I think means like the airport or the jetway. And it's a it's like a half hour film. I actually just watched it. Essentially, it's the same setup that he goes underground and all that stuff. But uh, the whole thing is that he has the memory of seeing the person shot and, and the woman. Uh-huh. But he can keep going back to the woman because his memory of the woman is so strong. He keeps popping up in this woman's life and like he kind of forgets himself and wants to live in that world. That's why he's chosen is specifically because of the memory, because really? he has such a strong memory from that time period. They think they can use that to send him back. Now, that's interesting. OK. Yeah. OK. Uh, it's, it, what's interesting, too, is the whole movie is done still images, picture of the guy, sure. picture of that, which makes the swapping through time a little right. smoother, I think. But, sure. Sure. So but worth a watch. If you like 12 Monkeys, give it a give it a shot. This the story of a man marked by an image of his childhood. Which brings us into Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. This had been beaten around Hollywood for years and years. Just like Confederacy of Dunces. It's a literary classic, but we haven't quite figured out how to 
make it into a film yet. Yeah. All right. For many years, it was in development. It was going to be an animation. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson had sold the rights to like his girlfriend for a couple of years, and she wanted to make it into an animation based on the guy that animates all of his books. Uh, Ralph Steadman. Right. Okay. And that that fell through. Jack Nicholson, Marlon Brando were, were going to be in it. Um, Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi. The reality is these people either died or got too old to play these parts. Yeah. All right. And then once Hunter S. Thompson involved himself in the process and saw Johnny Depp, he was like, it has to be made with Depp. He fell in love with Johnny Depp. And this whole thing got weird, man. Depp is spending time like in his house for like six months, wearing his clothes in the movie. Like really Became very good friends. Well, like he's the, the one that paid for the funeral. Right. When Hunter S. Thompson said he wanted his uh, ashes to be shot out of a cannon because he was a big gun dude. Yeah. And uh, Johnny Depp paid for it. I think it was even mentioned when they were talking about how Johnny Depp like was going bankrupt because of his extensive wine collection. They even mentioned (laughs) that like, and he paid for this funeral where a big million dollar cannon was built. Yeah. But unlike the other two movies, Scott, this was not popular. It wasn't successful. It got mostly bad reviews. It's it's been reconsidered now. I think some people perceive it as a cult film. And I think it's worth mentioning this has got a famous soundtrack too, full of 60s countercultural hits, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And and songs related to Vegas. Right. Many of our trilogies have taken place in Vegas, right? I I was going to ask, we should really uh, crunch the numbers. So yeah, those are the three films. Those are the three films that make up Terry Gilliam's Americana Trilogy. Yes. And Terry Gilliam is an interesting guy. First and foremost, he's the American member of the Monty Python crew. But he started off not so much as an actor, but he did all their graphics, all their visuals. Right. Cutouts and things like that. He's a visual guy. You can just see things in the background and see there's a visual meaning to that. So he did Holy Grail, and he was one of two directors, and this goes along with exactly what we're saying. He directed the visuals, the photography, right? whereas Terry Jones worked with the actors. And then he does these two trilogies back to back, the Imagination Trilogy and then Our Trilogy. Can you talk at all about uh, the movies he's done since then. Did you see Brothers Grimm? Uh, yes, I did see the Brothers Grimm. Now, what's that? Matt Damon and... Heath Ledger are the Brothers Grimm. It wasn't good? Uh, not so good. Not so good. Probably my least favorite of his I've seen. Okay, and then you have the Imaginarium. Of, I also saw that. Of Dr. What's Parnassus. The, now, I think that's most famous because Heath Ledger died in the making of the film, right? It's his last movie? Yes. So, Well, actually, I guess they had filmed quite a bit with him, but, but the movie is like... It's like the height of his craziness. Okay. Of Terry Gilliam over the top, you know, visually stunning kind of shit. He no. was also, uh, before the Watchmen movie was made in 2008, I believe. Okay. Um, he had wanted to take it and make it a 12 part miniseries because the comics are split into 12 issues. Really? And was going to do like a full, like deep dive version of it. And, I, and I've never heard a better idea. What happened to the American dream? It came true. You're looking at it. Motifs, okay? We're talking big, bold visuals. That's what he's about. Yeah. He started that way with uh, Monty Python, and that's continued throughout his work. And I mentioned it before, he really lets the characters kind of just go. You yeah. know, it's, he doesn't really police his actors. He's not really directing them too hard. He lets them do what they want to do. Yeah. Sometimes to some great success. Sometimes, I think, to their detriment. Well, especially, I think, I mean, if you have such a clearly defined world in the set design and the costuming as an actor, I mean, you you eat that shit up. Like, of like you've given me everything I need because you've built the world around me yeah. so specifically. Yeah. 
that, you know, you're going to get pretty much what you want. The grotesque, the supernatural, Dutch fucking angles. How about new, you crazy Dutch bastard? I love uh, specifically uh, one. I think it's such it's like the opening shot, I think, of Fisher King of him in the radio station. And you can clearly tell that's a built radio station that is like eight times taller than it needs to be. The way the shadows form against the wall, it looks like a prison cell for him. You see the bars. You see it a little bit too with the uh, insane asylums in the first two movies as well, between Fisher and 12 Monkeys. Those insane asylums look very much the same as well. Yeah. All of these set pieces are over the top, almost comical. In the asylum, you see these bright colors in the bed sheets contrasted against the white stark background. And the pajamas always have to have like cartoon characters sure. on them and sure. stuff. And too. Again, like, very Terry Gilliam, yeah. very kind of pushing the envelope. Yeah. You ready to rock into the Fisher King, Mon Frere? Sure. The Fisher King. Hit the road, Jack. Don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. Hit the road, Jack. And don't you come back no more. What you say? Trilogy superstar, Jeff Bridges. Iron Man. Always yes. good to see Jeff Bridges. Obadiah Stane in the first Iron Man. I confuse Jeff Bridges with Jeff Daniels nonstop, and I know they're different actors. I know. It happens. And listen, we have to mention Robin Williams, obviously. He's a trilogy superstar. He's a knight yes. of the museum. We all have our favorite Robin Williams films. We're not going to go into Robin Williams. So instead, Scott... Why don't you tell me a movie that you don't like that Robin Williams is the star of, where you're like, Ugh, enough Robin Williams. Ooh. Mine is Patch Adams. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think there's a bad Robin Williams performance, but there are bad movies that he's in, and I think one of them is probably Toys. Ooh, yeah. I'm Robin Williams, and I want to open up to you a question and answer about the new movie Toys. Yes. What the hell am I going to do? Come on down. See Toys. I don't understand. Well, it's like Toys in the Hood. Behave like a buffoon. Thank you. I feel like once we got older and were able to decode the Robin Williams technique of flitting from character to character. Oh, hey, yo, I pity the fool. <laughs> now I'm a preacher. You know, somebody's probably watching this right now and they're like, oh my God, what the hell is it? And you know, Scott, there's really a ton of actors in this film. Also, Mercedes Rule. She had some very good lines. I don't know that she did enough to get an Academy Award nomination for me. I yeah, that I didn't know, but... She did nothing after this movie. It's not like she parlayed this into a successful career, because before this, she did Married to the Mob, and she did um, Big, of course. She played Tom Hanks' mother in Big. Right. And this was kind of her peak. After this, it was all downhill. Also what played the mother in Last Action Hero. That's what I just said. All downhill. Oh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. David Hyde Pierce. I was just going to say, David Hyde Pierce. Kathy Najimy. Najimy? Kathy and Jimmy has there. that cameo in the uh, in the in the video store. Who I know best from playing the uh, one of the witches in Hocus Pocus. And while we're talking about the actors, let's just finish it off with uh, Michael Jeter. It was on the television show Evening Shade, the Burt Reynolds sitcom. But he's been in some big films as well. That's Tr- not what I know him. What do you know him from? Biggest film role was probably in the Green Mile. With Mr. Jingle. He was also in um, Jurassic Park 3. That's right, he is. Trilogy Superstar. Okay. That, that is a forgettable movie. Yes, it is. But I think he, he actually became famous from that Evening Shade show. But you know what? Yeah. That just illustrates that I'm older than you, and I remember <laughs> Burt Reynolds' sitcom. Tell me about Evening Shade. Burt is a hit again. <laughs> I mean, it's, you've got to feel terrific. Um, you say that like I'm a grain cracker or something. That I no, know. I mean, I... I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't finished in the business. I'm I didn't totally see. washed up. I, 
I had my own game show. Once we go three years later after uh, the massacre at the Chinese restaurant, in the video store, there is a prominently displayed poster for Brazil. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I saw some video box covers that looked familiar to me, but that's egregious. Come yeah. on now. While we're talking about those video boxes, they can't keep those things on the fucking shelves, can they? Well, you have Every that... scene is like a well, bumbling... The, the one scene where Robin Williams is pretending to work there and Amanda Plummer... <laughs> I it's love like that. It's like two it's two insane people. They can't just yeah. don't don't stop touching it. <laughs> Every video store had like slots. Why are these just kind of up on their side? Yeah. F- just free standing. That's yeah. not how that works. And clearly empty. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Come on. Hagen's has over 24,000 movies to choose from, including all the latest new releases, your all-time favorites, and the largest collection of classic movies in the state. That's why everyone comes to Hagen's. Do you have the movie Kingpin? I really like that movie. You must have been excited. I know you're a big Tom Waits fan, and he had a little scene in this movie. I I think it's one of the, honestly, it was the part I remembered most. It sets the theme of the movie of how we abandon our homeless people. You've got more depth than me, because all I perceive this as was another guy who is unclear when he talks. Why can't I understand anyone's words in this movie? You know, they do have closed captioning you could just put on. I had to do it for the for it, Fear and Loathing, okay? so funny you said that, because Amy was begging me to put on closed <laughs> caption for Fear and Loathing, and I didn't. No, I mean, he's definitely in, in that character, uh, unintelligible. Well, he's famous point. for not being intelligible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not superstitious, but... I'm I am a little stitious. There's a little kid who walks up to Jeff Bridges and gives him that Pinocchio doll. Yeah. Before he's attacked. Here you go, mister. Like, come on, take it. My grandmother gave me and I don't want it. No doesn't, one wants a gift from it grandma. It doesn't even take batteries. Yeah. Why would I want this? Because grandma inevitably asks mom what you want for Christmas. She gets it wrong. So it's like telephone. Yeah. It's telephone gifting, man. It's, it's the the man at the store said this is the one everyone wants. Yeah. Wasn't that an episode of The <laughs> Simpsons where Marge is like, everyone loves the Cavallo oh, golf game. The putting <laughs> challenge. That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> Your ball is in the parking lot. <laughs> would you like to play again? You have selected no. This a scene where uh, Jeff Bridges goes to commit suicide by tying these cinder blocks to his feet and then is interrupted and gets his ass kicked. But why wouldn't you just kill yourself? Why wouldn't you just jump in the water if these guys were going to come beat you up? You want to die. It just seemed like a weird thing. Like, oh, no, some people are here. I better. Oh, no. He takes the time to, like, bend over and try and take off the cement blocks like he's yeah. going to fight. Yeah. He's like, oh, wait a second. Let me take these off. I'm, I'm a jackass. <laughs> just kick them with He's them. like, I could obviously be beating you up right now because you're two dumb kids. But instead, I've idiotically tied this to my leg. <laughs> people spend a lot of hard-earned money for this neighborhood. It's not fair. Looking out their windows to see your ass asleep on the street. Let the bomb go, dipshit. You know what I wrote down? And this is perhaps a motif of the Gilliam films. Man ass. Now, I know we focused on man ass in Porky's. And Da Vinci Code, if you'll remember our conversation That's about right. bare man ass. They like soap Bruce Willis's ass like four times in that movie. <laughs> exactly. All the asses in these movies are, are shining. Don't tell me Robin Williams has such a beautiful ass. I thought his ass looked a little dirty. Interested? Very. Providing the information is good. And you stop soaping your ass. Let's talk for a second about getting Amanda Plummer involved in in Parry's world. If someone came to my job in drag and jumped on a table and started fucking singing, I'd be mortified. I, I Well, I think that's the idea, right? Because that's what I mean is the plan doesn't really make sense. The idea is to embarrass her until she finally comes down. Comes and, down and gets her free video membership? What? Yeah, I don't really get I, that. 
I don't, like, I don't get it either. Why wouldn't she come to the store and be like, hey, leave me the fuck alone? Dude, Bridges is like, like, just give me the thing. Bridges like, is like, look, she's obviously as moronic as this homeless guy, so let's just do something stupid. She'll she'll show up. Yeah. Again, it's another instance, too, of, of Jeff Bridges using homeless people throughout this movie. So he uses one homeless person to embarrass <laughs> himself right. to help another homeless person. <laughs> You're exactly right. Can I hear more versions of I like New York in June? There is a point where he's in the hospital and he's like, come on, like trying to orchestrate there. I like New York in June to one guy. And the guy just goes, I'm in the wrong place. (laughs) Someone needs to to say, look, these people are seriously (laughs) ill. You're they are not going to sing with you. Yeah. Stop it. You're you're in, you're hurting them. <laughs> They're not all singers, too. Maybe you're, they have other strengths. You're making their condition worse. <laughs> I'm getting worse. I'm getting better. You know, that whole Chinese food date. They're having the dim sum. There's a solid two minutes of like Robert Williams and Amanda Plummer playing with dumplings. Yeah. And didn't we just do this with Kung Fu Panda dumpling oh, play? Yeah. Well, he was much more elegant with his dumpling play. I'm just saying that <laughs> I thought that with Kung Fu Panda, we were done with dumpling play. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's nothing easier to pick up with a <laughs> chopstick than a dumpling. You are free to eat. Am I? Are you? I will say, too, I'll say this now anyway, uh, not bring it up again later, but I feel like there's this overall abuse of women that happens in all these movies, too. Mm. Like, women aren't really taken seriously. For instance, Jeff Bridges uh, basically abuses her by, like, you know, giving her no love when clearly she's fucking in love with him. Sure. And then you have 12 Monkeys. She's not taken seriously by the other Frank Gorshin and... Right. 12 Monkeys doesn't take her seriously. And then the last one, obviously, you know, like we talked about the Ellen Barkin scene and stuff like that. Kind of women just taken for granted, kind of just generally abused and used. He thinks of all actors as device pieces. Yeah, but I think these characters' relationships with women are flawed. It just seemed like it was a big theme to me. By the way, I realize at no point in this movie does he ever tell her, I'm homeless. (laughs) Not once. Is that right? He wouldn't give me his number because he doesn't have a phone. He's not married. He's poor. There was a little moment after the date where she's like, oh, call me. And he goes, she didn't give me the number. And he does a little like hand flick, like Groucho Marx style yeah. with the little cigar. Yeah. I was like, I, lo- I just love little touches like that. Somehow being a psychotic homeless man is so charming. But look at me. I've waked myself up from nothing to a state of extreme poverty. Now, what do you say? When we finally see what happened in the restaurant, right. right, where his wife gets killed. And, like, she gets her head from the back blown through into his mouth almost. It's horrifyingly Horrible. jarring. No wonder you went fucking crazy. I get it. But in bright red blood in the Gilliam style. Yeah. And then when Bridges decides that he's going to get the grail, can you explain to me why he dresses up as Parry to do it? I had and the his, same note. It's, and his fear and his way of doing it is to climb a rope and... <laughs> you know what I thought was interesting? Though? What is happening here? It started to make me think because as he's doing this, he suddenly, he's hearing horses. He's seeing all the things that Perry's saying. And I'm like, it's the clothes. The clothes <laughs> are what made him They're crazy. cursed. <laughs> Who wore those clothes? He was fine when he was in that David Byrne suit. <laughs> oh, 
mention that once the grail is returned to Robin Williams and he's perfectly healthy, ready to stand, run around, his legs would not be able to... They would have atrophied. Right. I wonder if he didn't get the cup and he just waited one more day, would he have just come out of it anyway? That's a good question. You know? And maybe just hand him anything. Walk into the the room and grab grab the doorstop and be like, here's the grail. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. Wonderful. Thank you. He chose poorly. The very ending of this movie was such a lighthearted ending of them naked laying in the grass. The theory is if all else fails, sing this fucking song about New York and just hope for the best. Yeah. And that's <laughs> what they went out with. Yeah. Okay, so on to 12 Monkeys. I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill on Blueberry Hill Trilogy superstar. Who? Bruce Willis. I love that guy. We talked about him in depth when we did um, Look Who's Talking. Yes. Yep. Um, talked about him during the Oceans trilogy yes, as a cameo. Cameo there. But He's been in two other trilogies. The Unbreakable trilogy. Then um, The Expendables. Oh, yeah. You guys aren't going to start sucking each other's dicks, are you? And then, of course, Brad Pitt, a trilogy, trilogy superstar, superstar Brad Pitt. Oceans. But it's uh, he's especially relevant now because he's the most recent uh, winner of the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. That's right. And That's I want to say that this was his first nomination for Best Supporting Actor. So we're coming full circle here. Another another case where I think Terry Gilliam really let him go and do whatever he, he does wanted. that. He lets these actors just talk. And Robin Williams, you would think, does it the best. Brad Pitt's certainly not going to do any better with his crooked ass eye. Well, I, I mean, and on the flip side, I think, you know, Bruce Willis. Willis opened himself up to playing like a vulnerable role, which I don't yeah. think you'd ever really seen him do before. This is his vulnerable period because he's vulnerable in Pulp Fiction too. There's moments though in this movie you can really see that the character of James Cole is really still that little boy in a yeah. weird way. He you like know. turned off the tough guy and that's weird for Bruce Willis, but it, it works. Crazily, it's this thing called acting where performers can <laughs> really play more than one type of part. Well, holy shit. <laughs> I, I can straighten this all out if I make a telephone call. Who would you call? Who would straighten everything out? The scientists. Oh. They'll want to know that they sent me to the wrong time. Yeah, Frank Gorshin, the Riddler from the old Batman TV show. I knew you'd get excited about that because it's Batman related. Yes, I forgot he was in the movie. I have nothing else to say about him. I just wrote Gorshin. Time is getting short. We've got to get Batman before he gets us. And since we're just kind of talking about the last of the famous actors in this one, Scott, Christopher Plummer. Yes. Another plumber. I think that's pretty interesting. Gilliam's got a thing for the plumbers. Yeah. They're weirdos. They are. He's kind of a weirdo, too. I thought he was English, and uh, but he's Canadian. Really? Yeah. Sure. Dude, he's Canadian. I looked it up. That's not an Englishman. Don't check my work. Don't, don't, look, on, don't look on your I'm phone. I'm not. You are. You really I'm are. I'm answering a text message. But in the middle of the podcast? <laughs> yes. It's Believe a very me, important... you thought he was an Englishman too, right? Of course I did. He's not. Canadian actor. Yeah. I think everyone knows Christopher Plummer from The Sound of Music. That's his biggest role. Yes. Naturally, Edelweiss. he's a famous. He's, oh, oh, that Sound of Music? Thanks, Scott. Edelweiss, Edelweiss, bless my homeland. 
another trilogy, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I think they borrowed heavily from this plot device because in the first movie, the whole thing is that the reason this happens is they they make a drug that's supposed to help with like Alzheimer's and they test it on the monkeys and it makes them like super intelligent, but it's deadly to humans. So at the end of the movie, there's this really great device where I was, I thought the movie nailed the ending where they show a guy from earlier who got like bit or something. Uh-huh. And it turns out he's an airline pilot. And they show him getting the plane, and then the credits are over this map showing him go to country and showing the outbreak happening. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about a contagion once again. In our last trilogy in Langdon, we dealt with one, and we're dealing with one again here. Attention. Due to the extremity of the simian flu crisis, all regular government functions have been suspended indefinitely. I thought it was pretty funny uh, when he's escaping, and he sees that security guard reading tabloids and he's reading like bat boy weekly world news bat boy classic Classic. which i think is kind of a funny again another funny visual touch to be like you don't believe my shit but you're gonna believe that shit and we see chris maloney in this film too yes Chris Maloney, he plays a, a, he's a, plays cop, a cop later on. He's a trilogy superstar, as you know. He's in um, Harold and Kumar. That's right. Uh-huh. And he's going to go on to play a small effeminate part in Fear and Loathing. Yes. You fuzzy little shithead. When they're in the car, when after uh, Bruce Willis kidnaps Madeline Stowe, and right. they're listening to the radio, and he's like, oh, oh, can you turn this up? Can you turn this up? They do a close-up of her touching the radio, and clearly she changes the station <laughs> from like 90-something to 100-and-something, and then all of a sudden it turns up and it's fucking Blueberry Hill or whatever Wait playing. a second. We know how radios work. Don't, you can't fool us. So we had Tom Waits in the last movie actually playing a role in the movie. And in this movie, we have a Tom Waits song playing as they travel to Philadelphia. Which, which song is it? It is a song titled The Earth Died Screaming. Oh, this song here. And the Earth Died song okay okay i make love to that song a lot so he sees all those uh homeless people and uh one of the homeless guys is like hey you're one of us to that but i was like are we to believe that all homeless people are just lost time travelers gilliam doesn't have any sense of what homeless people are really like (laughs) in this one too he has like a homeless guy's real camaraderie they're dressed (laughs) in like costumes and this one there's a guy preaching can someone let the filmmakers of the world know that no one's st- stood at the corner and held up a sign that says that the end is nigh in 25 fucking years. Yeah. Stop it. The end is near. We are all going to die. Honestly, he could have made it out of this whole thing if he hadn't made that phone call. That last phone call he makes really do- That's how they find him and yeah. they give him the gun if they yeah. hadn't done that. So it's really his fault. So he deserves it. Jesus, that's pretty grim, Scott. Okay. David Morse, who is the uh, scientist who has stolen the vials and is about to release them, uh, is going through security checkpoints. He goes through all that stuff. And my favorite thing, I think about it all the time, and I don't know why. It doesn't even have a smell. 
And the guy's like, that's fine, sir. You don't have to do that. I just find it so fun. I think about it all the time, and I don't <laughs> do know Do really? Yeah. Right. I was waiting, too, at the fucking, he's leaving, and he's like, oh, hold up there before he lets him go. And he's like, mm, and he holds up like a pair of Speedos. I don't know why I thought, <laughs> how'd you like to see me in these? But let me ask you something. What do you think of this? Wow. And you know what the saddest part of this whole movie is? What? Is that? Little Bruce Willis never gets to go on his trip, right? Yeah, After then, that happens, they yeah. walk back. You should, the last shot is yes, you sir. see the family walk back out to the car and get in. He looks up at the plane flying away. Either they canceled the flight or they thought, like, we got to take the kid home. He's all shook up. He just Where? watched a man die. Where were they going? Maybe the kid should have been wearing some Mickey ears and maybe a bullet could have winged off of one of the ears. <laughs> just a splatter of blood <laughs> onto the face on the ears. And now that we are all together, I've got a surprise for you. And I think Bloody Mickey Ears is as good a transition as any. <laughs> Into Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Scott? Yes. I hear the cottonwoods whispering above. Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's in love. What kind of rat bastard psychotic would play that song right now at this moment? Let's start with the actors first. We got Johnny Depp, of course. Um, he's a trilogy superstar, believe it or not. He's got a small part in Platoon, part of the Oliver Stone Vietnam trilogy, another uh, director's trilogy. What do you like that he's been in? I like him in Donnie Brasco. Great movie. Good one. Good movie. He's very good. I and think great book. He's Tim Burton's boy. Edward Scissorhands I like. My favorite Tim Burton movie, though, with him is Ed Wood. I think that's where he really gets to be. Instead of being, you know, some nightmarish caricature, uh, he's, you know, a real person. I like to dress in women's clothing. Panties, sweaters, pumps. It's just something I do. It's almost like he's an example of a professional wrestler who lets his character take over his life. I don't think he likes being Johnny Depp very much. Yeah. He, he doesn't just willy-nilly do every movie. You know nowadays. what? If you hadn't you mentioned know? Donnie Brasco, I might have been like, fuck uh, Johnny Depp. But Brasco is really good. I got you. You know what I will say? I, I don't think he's very good when he's playing straight. You know, I, I think when he is playing a character and he immerses himself, I enjoy that because I like to watch the, the process of sure, becoming that. Sure, sure. Um, I think since we're talking about the actors in this, we also have to mention Benicio Del Toro. Trilogy superstar Benicio uh, Del Toro. We're talking Thor here. What was the other he, one? Uh, he's in episode eight of the Star Wars sequels. Fascinating that in a movie where you can barely understand what what Johnny Depp is saying, we would cast one of the most incomprehensible actors in Hollywood to act right along with him. Usual suspects, they, they made it a character yeah. thing, really, but that's just him. Number three, step forward. How many keys, you cocksucker? In English, please. Excuse me. In English. How many fucking keys, you cocksucker? What the fuck? I do like him as uh, Frankie Fourfingers in Snatch. Okay. <laughs> Brad Pitt also in that movie, Unintelligible. <laughs> <laughs> and, but you know what? Honestly, with Fear and Loathing, you have to get used to the rhythms of their of their high talk. After a while, you kind of get it. Yeah. It's almost like Clockwork Orange, where once you get the droogish talk, you absorb it without thinking about yeah. it. How are thou, thou globby, bottle of cheap, stinking chip oil? The rest of the actors are mostly cameos. There are no other important actors. Trilogy superstar Tobey Maguire. Of course, he's Spider-Man in, in Raimi's Spider-Man, but I don't, well, I don't know what he's doing in this movie. He's just some guy in the backseat. Exposition he's device. I'm Spider-Man. No more. No more. 
mini me, Vern Troyer, with a little. Yes, a li- I said a little cameo, and boy, Aww. is it a little cameo. You know, I do want to point out that in every one of these movies, there is there is a, a little person, a dwarf. I mean, hey, they find their way into these trilogies. Ask an Ewok. <laughs> Scott, for me, and we could just disagree through this entire thing, but this is an example of being around someone else who's on a drug that you're not on, and because you're not on it, they're annoying. Because they're talking about grandiose theories of the world and what everything means, and you're like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> They are mixing back and forth pretty heavily with different kinds of drugs. So this is, I mean, this honestly watching it, it's beyond my experience. Oh no, I, sure, I don't you know, I, listen. Like, I'm, it's beyond mine too. But I'm just saying, it's still annoying. If you saw <laughs> these guys, you'd be annoyed with them. I, and most of the people in the movie are. Hey, want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? I don't think it's a comment on the hippie culture, Scott, as much as it's a comment on excess an american excess if we're talking about the american trilogy this is a perfect example of taking things to the goddamn limit especially later on in the film when they're like yeah we spent an average of how much on room service every hour but in a lot of ways too i think it is this is the most poetic part of the entire movie and you can tell that it's straight up hunter s thompson it was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right that we were winning and that i think was the handle that sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. Like, it's it's just an incredibly poetic sum up of how useless all of that was. You know, and I respect you know what I mean? that. Like, Wait, I respect that if I'm reading it in a book. I just don't know that that sentiment translates on film. If it weren't for this movie, there are a huge number of people who would have no fucking clue who Hunter S. Thompson is. So I think in a lot of ways, it's kind of a service to his life and his work. It's something like I would compare to, you ever seen like Mulholland Drive is a uh, David Lynch film yeah. that is seems completely unconnected and is just like short scenes basically but there apparently is some sort of deeper connection that's like impossible to really get man's attitude goes some ways the way his life will be is that something you might agree with sure the police convention Mm. you can hear some cops talking about how they gave him hell at kent state yeah and stuff like that too it's pretty hardcore again bring it that's i thought was interesting is because you know especially we're talking about this now i think there there is a bit of like a protest culture angle well i think you're making a relevant point that right now we're seeing what comes closest perhaps to what existed in the late 60s yeah except it's much more angry and hurt and scared. Whereas I feel like in the 60s, there was a lot, it was the summer of love. As more bodies started coming back from Vietnam, that mindset changed in a big way. Yeah. So I think now we're seeing closer to what it was like when we were really able to pressure the government to get out of Nam. Like, look, you're, yeah. thousands of people are Nobody dying wants now. this. You're supposed to be representing it, us. It, it, exactly. <laughs> like, you know.
I was shocked that it took an hour and 20 minutes for us to see someone puke in this movie. And then it's like they open the floodgates. Then Benicio's puking every five minutes. Worth the wait. <laughs> Come on. It's the best acting he's doing in this movie. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I wanted to see his belly button six more times. Thank God. Watching people get sick always makes me sick. And well, frankly, so does talking about it. So, wow. I got a few lines here that I think were just made me laugh hard. And I'd like to mention them. Once he's done the uh, adrenochrome or whatever, and he's looking at him and Benicio's becoming that like beast creature in his mind. Right. And all of a sudden he's got all those tits on the side of him. Beautiful fucking tits, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when they're attacking that maid where he's like, what's your name? He's like, Al is like, prove it. And he shows him the name tag. Like, okay. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. It's not unusual to have fun with anyone. But when I see you hanging about with anyone, it's not unusual to see me cry. I wanna die. All right, we've come to the end of another trilogy, my friend. We've done it. There was some discord this time around, but we completed it. But cooler heads prevailed. Yes, they did. <laughs> and when I think of a cool head, I certainly think of. Phil. I knew you were going to say that. Okay. I'm <laughs> lying. That's the last thing I think of. He may not have the coolest head, but he might be our only hope in this situation. We figured out a way that we can send Phil back in time to try and stop the coronavirus. Yes, we did. The results are mixed. Here's what happened. Hey, folks. Phil here, your field correspondent for the Trilogy Podcast. I'm here for Terry Gilliam's Americana Trilogy and I'll be tasked with traveling through time and stopping a worldwide pandemic from occurring. Bit of a tall order. I've been sent some sort of time travel apparatus by Vin and Scott that will reportedly send me back to the last year so I can gather information about the virus's spread. Well, no time like the present. <laughs> it's a little time travel humor for you. <laughs> okay, let's do this. Whoa, I think it's working. Whoa, whoa. Wait, wait, where am I? I'm on a boardwalk. And there's the ocean. Oh, I'm at the Jersey Shore. Wait, why are so many people wearing Michael Jordan jerseys? Oh, God. I'm in the 90s. Oh, look at all the people just living their lives without a care in the world. Everyone crowded together and no one wearing a mask. So, you know, just like the present day Jersey Shore. Smell that air. Man, this is bringing back so many memories. Especially that time I saw that man get run over by the tram that drives up and down the boardwalk, but that couldn't be today. Wait. Oh my God, there I am. It's young me. Oh no. That means... Oh my God, that man just got run over by the tram car. I will be haunted by this memory for the rest of my life. Whoa, that was the most fucked up thing I've ever seen. Yeah, I've seen worse. Like the time I watched two frat guys shank a hobo. Wait, 
Young Scott and Young Finn, what are you guys doing here? Dude, you shouldn't know who we are yet. Yeah, we haven't met yet. You're right! Relax, we know you're a time traveler, we are too. Have you pulled your teeth out yet? Here, I'll help you. What? No! Come on, Phil. 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 Come on, snap out of it, Phil. Come on, Phil. Hey, come on. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, we just brought you back from the dentist. You're home from the dentist. Hey, hey, hey. You're home. Boy, he is really out of it. Well, he had to have three root canals. I think they gave him some pretty heavy-duty drugs. You stay away from my teeth! I'll kill you! <laughs> okay. Time to go? Yep. I'm gonna get a cream sickle and plug it in my teeth. Why did you trust Phil? I mean, don't you know better at this point? Uh, he's kind of, he was kind of just a guinea pig, honestly. You think I want to send myself back in case something happens? All right, well, we gave it a shot. And we gave this trilogy a shot. It's another director's trilogy. These are kind of tricky, Scott. We don't do them very often. Yeah. And we kind of have to approach them from a different angle, but we got through it. I'll go first this time around. I think I, you went first last time. Sure. In terms of breaking these bad boys down. Sure. Okay. Whereas I think this is a good, very good representation of Terry Gilliam as a director. I just disliked the third movie so much, I cannot call it a successful trilogy. So for me, this is unsuccessful. Two, one, three. Uh, I obviously am going to say I, I think it is a successful trilogy. I, think, I mean, these are his three most successful movies. I no doubt say. about that. Um, this was like the hottest part of his directing career. Uh, yeah, I think it, they do sort of gel well. I mean, definitely the first two movies are much more similar, but I think I think it fits. I think it works for the Americana thing because we are getting this, while we are getting these two fantasy stories set in America, the third one is not a fantasy. So it's kind of, it's a switch up for sure. So I will give uh, my order. And I think actually I'm going to end up giving the exact same order and say it's a 2-1-3. But uh, I got to give it to Robin Williams because it was a delight to, I hadn't watched a movie uh, since he passed. Oh, Scott. So, uh, yeah, it was nice to see him again. And uh, it was uh, it was emotional, but not in the way that I expected. I this expected is, it to be sad, but I was not. This is a new one for us where we agree on the order, but disagree on whether it was successful or not. All right, doing different things yeah ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for listening to us yet again my name is vin i'm running the instagram and i really try and match the instagram um, posts daily with what we've talked about in this month's episode and uh, i am scott of course and i run the uh, twitter we do some uh, fun polls about our current episodes so uh, check that out and interact with us folks things are changing can you hear it things are getting better you know right it's not so bad out there well, you know what you've convinced me it really is wonderful world I see skies of blue and clouds of white the bright blessed day the dark sacred night and I think to myself what a wonderful world The colors of the rainbow